Thank you for joining us for Mental Health. Let's talk about it. I am your host, Charlene Pickram, the owner of Pick Empowerment, and you're tuned into CIOE 97.5 Community Radio. And this evening, I have a special guest in with me, Wayne Maxwell, who I actually met in the early 90s when he joined us at the Nova Scotia Community College uh, for the Correctional Workers Program. And Wayne and I have met several times since then, and he has a wealth of knowledge. And I asked him to join us today to share that knowledge because I believe that our wisdom needs to be shared. So welcome, Wayne. Thank you very much. Good to be on board with you. (laughs) And so, Wayne, you uh, have quite an extensive work history and i i really want you to you know help our listeners understand where your wisdom has been gathered from so can you share with individuals what your background is in your in your work life and um where you are at currently okay we'll give it a whirl uh in, in a nutshell uh started off uh uh, going to university uh, in physical education, and that started as a result of a lot of activities in which I was involved before, uh, during high school. And uh, that included being around the uh, Y in St. John New Brunswick a lot, uh, a lot of competitive swimming, uh, into scuba diving, uh, lifeguarding, uh, a lot of activities like that. And uh, the lifeguarding uh, was uh, an area that uh, took me into a few incidents which were impacting, traumatic incidents. Mm -hmm. And uh, after that, uh, after the experience in physical education and uh, being a physical education director at OI after graduation, uh, I went on to uh, work within... Uh, the correctional system uh, as a probation officer, as a, an institution superintendent. Mm-hmm. And uh, with doing those programs, uh, I thought it would be appropriate to go back, and I did part-time to university, and do further uh, coursework in the area of psych. Yes. Worked off an undergraduate degree in psych, and uh, then on to a graduate degree in counseling psych. And uh, later, a graduate degree in public administration, where I focused upon uh, crisis intervention in the public sector, major disasters and uh, situations like that. Really? Even even back then, they had that course? Well, when I did the Master's in Public Admin, uh, the studies I did on uh, crisis intervention in the public sector... Mm -hmm were based on training that I had already received through Emergency Preparedness Canada in planning for coursework, and I did uh, independent studies research in those areas and uh, used those as credits with the uh, public administration degree. Okay, nice, nice. So you, you already had that interest in trauma, and you kind of identified that that came from your experiences uh, with lifeguards? Yes, uh, in part. Yeah. But uh, it also um, re- relates back to family as well. Okay. Um, my brother was with fire service for a period of time. And uh, during uh, one of the occasions when I was uh, studying uh, for an exam, uh, he had a fire call and asked if I wanted to go to a fire with him. So I went to a fire with him. Hmm. And we arrived there, and um, he proceeded to go directly and become involved with the response to the fire, firefighting, and uh, went into a building, came out, went in a second time, came out, and, and uh, from where I was standing, it looked like the building collapsed right out on him. But uh, when I got to a different angle and looked, it was only the upper floor which had come down. Right. Uh, the front uh, 
uh, wall of the second floor of the building. And it was that that fell onto the uh, street in front of the building. And uh, I, I saw him and I saw this building come down. I thought the whole building came down. I thought he was inside the building. Mm. But he'd come out, he was on the street. Okay. And I went around the uh, fire vehicle. Uh, it was a ladder truck, an area ladder truck in front of the building. And uh, I was prepared to go into the building. Mm -hmm. uh, my safety, I wasn't even thinking of. But I didn't have to get into the building because there were already a couple of firefighters who were standing near a telephone pole, which had broken the fall of that wall <sighs> as it came down on him. Or he might have been more seriously injured. Mm. Anyway... Uh, Talked to him while he was conscious. I talked to him under the building. I stood on the wall of the building and looked down into a hole. He was about three or four feet below where the wall was. And uh, just checked him, as you would in a first aid type of intervention. Yes. And uh, he was talking. He was okay. He asked if he had pain and so forth and then went from there. But uh, there were several things connected with that. All the response I had done there was, even in junior high school, I had taken junior first aid training. And uh, that had uh, resulted in being applied, well, as one time then. Mm -hmm. And uh, the uh, situation there, uh, in turn, I went to the hospital with him. All he had was uh, after... Checking was a broken collarbone and a, a cut, something cut through his uh, boot, his rubber boot, and cut his foot. Mm -hmm. But our parents were on the way to the fire after I had called them and said there had been an accident and Jerry and I are going to the hospital. And uh, the information that was coming on the radio was uh, indicating that he was seriously injured. He was quite hurt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when I got there, uh, my dad came to me and said, Jerry, what's going on with Jerry? Uh, we heard on the radio that he was seriously injured. I said, no, no, no. Uh, he's injured, but not seriously for sure. Mm -hmm. He probably has a broken collarbone, and uh, he was talking about something bothering his foot. And uh, so what you heard on the radio was inappropriate, and it upset Mom and Dad. Mom was really upset. Of course. But that was uh, a w way back when in an early exposure to these events. Mm -hmm. But even earlier than that, in lifeguarding situations, there was one occasion where I had to uh, do direct artificial respiration. I was off duty that day on that beach. And uh, part of the lifeguard team, uh, uh, I was part of the lifeguard team, but off duty. There were two other lifeguards working. Mm -hmm. And uh, a crowd gathered around the lifeguard uh, tower. I was on the beach that day, and that was an indicator that something serious was going on. So I went over, and uh, my partner there was doing uh, direct artificial respiration on the little guy. He was out of it, wasn't breathing, and kneeled down beside uh, Steve and said, well, I'm here, what can I do for you? Mm-hmm. And uh, he suggested I give a try to get him breathing. And the new airways were coming out at that time for doing direct artificial respiration, plastic, yes. tubes type of thing. And uh, I was more comfortable without it and suggested to him, uh, I'm not going to use the tube, I'm going to go direct. So all the routine and the adjustment of the head, the extension of the neck, uh, the pucking of the nostrils and then blowing into the uh, lungs. Yes. A uh, couple of breaths. Uh, the first breath went in, and within, uh, I'd say, maybe four or five, of, it's hard to say exactly how many that many years ago. Yeah. <laughs> but the little guy coughed, and mm. as soon as he did, again, first aid intervention, roll over in case there's uh, obstruction in the throat or airways and so forth. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Anyway, the little guy survived. He started breathing on his own. He was unconscious for a while. His pulse uh, was very weak at first, but uh, increased in strength as we were checking it, mm -hmm. doing the artificial respiration. That's another incident that came up even before the fire uh, situation with my mm -hmm. brother. Hmm. Interesting. And so, you know, all these little incidents, you know, I asked you about 
because you brought in your resume and I was, wow, this is really interesting because you had time in the Royal Canadian Navy Reserve, um, the physical education aspect of it, and then which led into the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. That's right. Which I was, said. and these were things that were kind of brought to you more so than you seeking them out. Well, the members uh, that were working out in the fitness class uh, uh, in the RCMP uh, asked me if I'd be interested in joining as an auxiliary member. And mm -hmm. uh, I took on that responsibility and found it interesting that just a continuation of emergency response, which in turn has an element of trauma with it pretty consistently. Mm -hmm. So in that capacity, there are motor vehicle accidents, uh, uh, fatalities. Uh, as a diver, I dove on a few uh, accident scenes, uh, body recovery, we uh, weapon recovery, uh, any items connected to crimes, mm -hmm. uh, recovering of motor vehicles and that type of thing. Yeah, and I didn't know you were a diver because I'm also certified as a diver. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Can't say I've done that. I, mine was all about fun, but yes. And then, so the correctional service. So you started in the correctional services in 1968. 68, that's correct, yes. Mm -hmm. And predominantly, were you in New Brunswick? Uh, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia. Okay. Both. Uh, and after Nova Scotia, uh, I was off to the Atlantic Place Academy, um, which, uh, as in addition to the police program, had corrections, uh, private security, uh, operations, conservation. There were a number of programs that uh, they operated at that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, my responsibility there was a program manager and deputy director. Uh, while I was at the academy. Hmm. All right. So you're, for our listeners, you're getting a little peek at uh, Wayne's background, and we're going to continue with that when we get back from the break. And I hope you stay tuned. You're listening to CIOE 97.5 Community Radio. Welcome back to Mental Health. Let's talk about it. I'm Charlene Pickram, and we were talking with Wayne Maxwell. And before we went on the break, uh, Wayne was just talking about how he entered the Atlantic Police Academy, and there were various uh, different forms of training there for you to take advantage of. Um, and so after the Police Academy, and your time as a program manager, deputy director, um, you started your own company. Yes, I started my own company, uh, Crycon Consulting. Um, I was getting a lot of requests for uh, training, a lot in training of training in crisis intervention. Uh, I'd also received specialized training in conflict, major. Uh, conflict situations. Uh, as a uh, talker, a negotiator mm -hmm. for crisis intervention, uh, in policing and corrections as well, and uh, how, how to set up and structure responses. And there was usually an introduction there to the impacts of these events on the people that are on the various teams mm -hmm. that do interventions. Uh, but they don't have to be on the teams. If you're doing, uh, say, general police work, general corrections work, you do run into situations where they are, there are threat, they are threatening. You do run into people that are seriously injuries, mm. seri seriously injured, people who have uh, people who attempt suicide uh, or wind up uh, dead after uh, suicide attempts. Mm -hmm. Uh, those situations uh, can be extremely upsetting. Yes. But there's also the threat and intimidation that is there from some people mm -hmm. who uh, sadly have uh, grown up in circumstances where they didn't pick up on, weren't able to learn some of the uh, means of handling difficult situations. 
which results very frequently in their aggressive behavior mm. uh, to others, uh, especially to people who have authority legally. Yes, exactly. So in regards to trauma, so we're looking, you know, between 1960 and 2004. Um, what was kind of the outlook, view, training in regards to trauma and supporting individuals who were impacted by trauma in their various professional roles? Well, there's very little linkage uh, through the 60s and 70s, and it wasn't really until the late 70s and on to the 80s that more information uh, as a result of research was being uh, uh, made available. Mm-hmm. Um, doing first uh, graduate work in psych, uh, there was no courses available at all in Eastern Canada in, uh, in trauma. No. Uh, or uh, another uh, t- uh, term that's used for early impact is critical incident stress or uh, uh, occupational stress injuries as the military uses today here in Canada. Mm-hmm. So uh, the early period of time, uh, in order to get any information or training, uh, I was going out of country, stateside, mm-hmm. and uh, getting to conferences uh, where there were various professional groups that would be meeting uh, dealing with traumatic stress, and it was in that context that they began to have more insight into trauma interventions and more specifically into uh, early interventions when it, when it is taking place or shortly after. Yes. Yeah. And that has been a change over the years that has been indeed very significant, and the future in that field is uh, still unfolding as we develop more and more insight into how trauma develops and how it affects us and what are some of the uh, treatment or supportive uh, approaches that uh, can be used to assist people who have been impacted by these types of events. Mm, definitely. And, and you know, you and I have had several conversations and you yourself, because of your various roles, have also experienced trauma. For sure, for sure. If if one is out uh, uh, responding to calls, policing, uh, if they are working in a correction setting, if uh, not only those two areas in which I've had direct experience, but hospitals that emerge. Mm. Today, all of our first responders, in fact, one of the uh, groups that I spend a lot of time with in responses and in training is with the Fire Service Association of Nova Scotia, mm-hmm. where we are involved as uh, peer team members and mental health professionals in pr- providing early support, if yes. not on scene, when a person is back at a fire station and they've been upset, then with the awareness they have today, there's more likelihood that they're going to be talking to a peer with specific training very quickly. Mm-hmm. And I'm proud to say I'm part of a team in Nova Scotia, which is one of the uh, better teams that I've seen across the country uh, in the way it operates uh, right across the province. Mm. And and so, you know, I know that you have taken the initiative to get further training you're still putting yourself out there and attending different training around the world um, to assist you to be the most effective in your role what are some of the different trainings that you have received that assist you with uh, that peer role in assisting others deal with their crisis? The, well, one of the organizations that really started to work internationally to develop that area uh, is the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation. Mm. And uh, they 
began as a result of experiences of both of the people uh, who have taken the leadership role, Dr. George Everly and Dr. Jeff Mitchell. Mm -hmm. uh, they started in the late 70s, early 80s doing uh, support types of interventions with peers as paramedics and so forth, mm. fire service. That has increased. The organization, ICISF, International Critical Instance Stress Foundation, has grown so that it's international. Mm -hmm. uh, you can find their programs in, 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 in England, Germany, um, China, uh, Australia, to mention a few. Wow. And uh, I have met at conferences people who have been involved with some of the internationally reported high-profile international events that relate to uh, issues that occur, uh, trauma, uh, mm. plane crashes, uh, uh, major fires, um, terrorism. And mm. one of the conferences recently, there was a psychiatrist who was practicing psychiatry in uh, Syria. And the cross-cultural information that he was able to provide on doing trauma work uh, with Arabic-speaking people was indeed interesting mm -hmm. uh, because the cultural issues are so sensitive. Today we're having more issues with conflicts between cultures and subcultures Yes, that we've just never been aware of, but we are becoming more aware of as time goes on. Mm. Uh, coming to another country with another culture, another language, a whole different sets of values and beliefs itself, when you realize that they're so very different, can be very upsetting. Mm -hmm. And people who are working their way through learning uh, things new in the areas that I've mentioned uh, can be very upset and experienced uh, trauma just with those types of situations. Mm -hmm. And there are subcultural issues as well uh, that interfere with uh, the subcultures, uh, for example, with uh, military or first responders. They, as a result of the subculture, wind up sensing that, hey, I'm better than average, I'm uh, I'm stronger, I can withdraw, I can withstand all of these uh, situations mm -hmm. that I'm exposed to. And yet, when they do get exposed sometimes, it's human and happens frequently that they have a very difficult time accepting an experience that is inconsistent with what their beliefs are. Yes. Which can mean trauma too. Yes. And interfere with going and seeking appropriate assistance and aid with mm -hmm. properly trained mental health professionals. Yes. Yeah. I mean, properly trained training in the trauma and the methodologies, the therapies that are relevant for the treatment mm -hmm. of trauma. And you and I talked about, you know, the cultural differences, that language also plays a very key role because in some cultures, they don't even have language to express um, some of the impacts of those trauma that are happening so that the person providing the support is having a hard time communicating with them and helping them understand. Yeah. One, of, one of the points that I've uh, heard, and it's from the psychiatrist, uh, one source was the psychiatrist I just mentioned, who was practicing in Syria recently over the years with the conflicts that are taking place there is that in Arabic, they, there's not a word which is similar to the word that we use for stress. Mm. Now, interestingly, in the medical field, in psychiatry specifically and in psychology, the uh, term stress was just not used until uh, the late 50s, early 60s. Mm. Uh, one of our... Uh, psychiatrists, uh, psychologists, teaching in Canada, Dr. Hans Selye, uh, began to use the word stress. And there were some others as well. Uh, Walter Cannon, Dr. Cannon, mm. began to use the word stress. But interestingly, those medical people, psych uh, professional psychologists, 
uh, took the word stress that I just mentioned from the engineering field. And they were referring to when they uh, uh, began to use that word stress, that the body structures and function were breaking down under extra demands being made. Yeah. Engineering-wise, the extra demands being made with the weight of buildings and different stories meant stress with materials. Mm-hmm. So for a long time, the professional people were poo-pooing, if I can use that word. <laughs> That's the, one we can use. <laughs> they were... Uh, they were uh, really uh, not. They were saying that you know, where's your research? Uh, this isn't a good idea to be using these this, these terminology. The psychological piece related to stress mm-hmm. is not relevant here. Mm-hmm. But today, that whole area uh, relating to human stress, mm-hmm. uh, post traumatic stress, uh, is indeed a whole different uh, uh, area of study. And uh, even stress of some types has been related to some specific types of uh, cancer. Mm, Yeah. So we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue to look at trauma. Um, And we're going to discuss early intervention. How does early intervention work today? What does it look like? You're listening to CIOE 97.5 Community Radio. In the final segment of Mental Health, let's talk about it on CIOE 97.5 FM. Uh, We're going to continue our conversation with Wayne Maxwell. And before the break, we were talking about specific interventions to assist individuals overcome the consequences of trauma. Um, And we were talking about the tapping. Um, And so, Wayne, can you provide a little bit more information about that as well as some of the other uh, interventions that are available for individuals out there to overcome trauma. Sure thing. Uh, the more, first of all, the more frequent therapy that is in, in use today, and I, I think it relates more to the uh, therapy that has been uh, more popular and uh, showed better results with the uh, uh, approaches to look at the effectiveness, the random controlled trials type of thing. Yes. Experimental groups and uh, comparison groups type of thing. Uh, The therapy that's probably been used most frequently, and colleagues, when I do talk to them once in a while, uh, uh, and we start talking therapy, most of them are... uh, giving priority to cognitive behavioral therapy. Yes. And uh, today, even those therapies are, are being used with an increased accent on mindfulness, mm-hmm. which goes back to what I mentioned before earlier. Yeah. Uh, the mindfulness being the relaxation, uh, the deep breathing, uh, and being aware uh of what's happening with your body, how you're thinking, how you're feeling, uh, what is causing tension, mm-hmm. and then working that constantly towards the relaxation. So between the cognitive behavior, behavior therapy, which has been frequently used, uh, based on both behavioral and cognitive uh, therapies, yes, and the therapists who develop those, um, Skinner with the behavioral therapy, Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of the cognitive therapy uh, goes back to Skinner. Uh, maybe I'm getting the mix up there. Anyway, uh, but uh, that th- those changes are taking place mm-hmm. frequently. The uh, tapping therapy or therapies have come from what is called thought therapy. Uh, Thought field therapy, TFT, thought field therapy, therapy, mm-hmm. and uh, it involves uh, processes where uh, people are uh, describing their thoughts, the upsets that they may have that cause them upset when recalling traumatic events, mm-hmm. and then going through various tapping exercises. The tapping 
uh, again, uh, on the mindfulness, uh, gets into the various uh, energy systems within the body. Yes. And uh, when tapping does take place, it allows for relaxation. Tapping can take place uh, in different spots, on the, on the head, on the face, uh, around the mouth, on the fingers. There are spots where when you tap, you can really feel a relaxation or a really deep uh, impact, mm -hmm. which can be relaxing. And as I sit here and I'm tapping now, uh, my eyebrow just close to my nose, I can switch it and tap away from my nose at the other end of the eyebrow. Yeah. And the light tapping there with an index finger can be very, very noticeable and soothing. Mm -hmm. So thought field therapy is one. Callahan is a gentleman who put that therapy together. There's also emotional freedom therapy, mm -hmm. which accents more the emotional emotions and uh, we'd have a link with Carl Rogers with what he did with the emotional emotions and therapy. Mm -hmm. And uh, the linkage there is uh, significant too with the uh, uh, feelings that people have and sorting out feelings. Yes. The research too is growing significantly. And I've been through some of that research more recently with... Uh, emotional freedom therapy uh, is showing that there's a significant success mm. with random control trials mm -hmm. with that therapy as well. I believe so it. So the breakthroughs, our new insight, our new learning is growing tremendously. Mm -hmm. Now everything we're talking about now is more appropriately used with people who have actually been diagnosed with what uh, DSM calls, calls uh, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. DSM is a diagnostic and statistics manual of the American Psychiatric Association, and it is used as a guide for uh, mental health professionals in diagnostic work, in preparation before even beginning therapy. Yes. And uh, usually uh, those signs and symptoms have to exist uh, according to DSM-5, for uh, 30 days or more before mm. a diagnosis can be made of post-traumatic stress disorder. Which is scary. 30 days person, is a long time. That's right. Now, if the person is showing some signs and symptoms earlier, then it's acute stress disorder, and it's there where the critical incident stress management, the psychological first aid, mm -hmm. uh, all of those approaches are being used to uh, uh, stabilize the person. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, most of the time, it works before even the diagnosis of PTSD uh, is made. Mm -hmm. uh, so that it's important to recognize those, uh, the break-off points between acute stress and post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so I've had the cognitive behavioral therapy for, so I wasn't diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. I was diagnosed with burnout, vicarious trauma, compassion fatigue. It's very likely at some point over my career yep. um, that I had post-traumatic stress disorder, but it was never, well, it was never diagnosed because I never reached out for help. Yeah. Um, and, uh, the cognitive behavioral therapy was really in, and I use it all the time, even today. Um, and the emotional therapy It was one of the reasons, yeah. yeah, it's one of the reasons why I took the emotional and social intelligence, yeah. um, was to broaden my own awareness to help yeah. me express myself. Yeah. Um, and so I, I really see value within that because as um, employees, we weren't trained for that early on. We, you know, it was all about our clients. It was not about us. Mm -hmm. um, and the resources weren't there for us. Yes. Uh, and so, you know, I see the 
that stress and um, the impacts of caring for others is really being recognized now. Yep. And again, it comes back to the liabilities of the employer. That's correct. A lot of that is a major, major factor. Um, you mentioned the uh, emotional and the feelings. That's uh, Carl Rogers and client-centered therapy, as mm. that was called. And that had very high impact with certain diagnostic factors for sure. You mentioned that you didn't recognize what was going on uh, with yourself. My early experiences with uh, fatalities, motor vehicle accidents, uh, body removal from the uh, vehicles um, was a major fire in uh, 1977 when 21 people died in the police lockup, 21 young people mostly. Mm -hmm. And uh, after that, uh, I was there uh, uh, overseeing what was taking place and providing or making extra means available, extra staff, for example, from the Justice Department. And uh, I had direct exposure with firefighters, police officers, correctional officers who worked that uh, police lockup that evening when those deaths occurred, when the fire occurred. And uh, I saw people uh, who were extremely upset, teary-eyed, more than I'd ever seen before. I mm. uh, saw that uh, along the way uh, as well in other areas, but when this happened to me, I was wondering, what's going on with me? How am I feeling? Mm -hmm. Why am I feeling this way? Why, what's going on? I was going through a process of uh, recognizing trauma, or at least recognizing the signs of trauma, but mm -hmm. not knowing a thing about, was, is this trauma? Mm -hmm. Is this post-traumatic stress? Exactly. Is it acute stress? What? Well, I didn't even know what they were No. when I first experienced those. That incident was one of the major ones that propelled me ahead to learn more. But the experience there at, under, at, at feeling things that were different, thinking things that were different, being preoccupied, mm. laying down at night and thinking about situations that I had seen, uh, even going to the morgue that night and, and being of assistance to a police officer who was rolling out prints to identify people. Mm. And uh, me saying, look, we're going to be in trouble. He said, what do you mean we're going to be in trouble? I said, He's one of these young guys here. He can't be over 16. Mm. So just those types of things come back to you type of thing. Yeah, definitely. And so for our listeners' information, um, we're actually going to do a second show with Wayne. So I hope you'll join us again on May 6th um, because we're just really starting to unravel some of the information that Wayne has uh, gathered over the years. So I want to thank you for today's show, Wayne, and coming in. And um, I look forward to uh, taping our next show. And on behalf of myself and my producer, Georgina Fitzpatrick, and the station, CIOE 97.5 FM, be empowered. Thanks for staying tuned in the CIOE 97.5 FM, Mental Health, Let's Talk About It. I'm your host, Charlene Pickram, the owner of Pick Empowerment, and I'm speaking with Wayne Maxwell, and we're talking about trauma and how trauma-informed care has really progressed over the years and how it is really still young itself and will continue to grow. So at the moment, um, there is so many different stressors in our lives. What, what are different organizations utilizing for early intervention to assist individuals not not be impacted in such a negative way from the various stressors that they're being experienced to? Uh, there are several organizations that are assisting in, in developing techniques to intervene. Many organizations are picking those uh, techniques, those systems of approach up and using them. Yeah. And uh, generally, if it's into areas 
primarily first responders. That's where it started. Yeah. Military. Uh, but now it's really being identified much more clearly in the medical professions. Uh, and, and, and there it's, it's related to uh, trauma with difficult situations, dealing with, uh, say, motor vehicle accident patients or children that are seriously injured, mm-hmm. uh, killed in various mishaps or injured. Um, those types of situations can be upsetting. And uh, they, th- those people were not on the scene when they're responding to and treating uh, the people, the children involved in those situations. Uh, but the treatment and involvement in a secondary way mm-hmm. impacts. In fact, the secondary or hearing about yes, the uh, a situation mm-hmm. uh, can mean that the impacts are greater than those who are first responders. Mm-hmm. And part of that reason is that uh, people think about what's the nature, what's going on here, uh, where, where are the parents, are the parents okay, all of those, how would that impact me if it were my child? Those yes. thoughts create an awful lot more uh, pressure and tension. And that's termed today secondary trauma. And uh, th- therapists, like psychologists, uh, who are involved with uh, people who have experienced trauma and they are doing uh, therapy with uh, those people who have been impacted by traumatic events. Yeah. They frequently are impacted big time. Yeah. And uh, that, that trauma tends to be termed vicarious trauma. It also is a secondary type of trauma. Mm-hmm. And it has long-term impacts on those who are working in the trauma field in that there is less of a willingness to get involved, to sometimes hear the details of what people are saying. Uh, And it's even to the point where when you go home at the end of the day and you're putting your head down to sleep in the evening, you're thinking back to the, the client, the patient that you had uh, and you were trying to provide assistance too so that they could progress beyond some traumatic experiences that has impacted them. Yeah. So that type of thing is happening more. Early interventions are, are much more uh, referred to as psychological first aid in a general way, mm-hmm. more specifically uh, and with more techniques that being used. It's uh, critical incident stress management. So it's identifying critical incidents impact us in many ways. Physiologically, there's impact. Our blood pressure goes up. Our pulse rate goes up. Uh, We lose fine motor skills when the blood beats per minute gets to a certain uh, level type of thing. But there are cognitive things, uh, upset, uh, worry, uh, uh, maybe some guilt sometimes. We should have done more. Why is this happening? So there's emotional... uh, the, the factors are, are there, and they're, they're, they're significant. They stick with us. Yeah. Um, but the, the, for first responders, where groups of people are involved with traumatic events, uh, there's individual uh, early interventions. Uh, it's not therapy, but it's, as I mentioned, psychological first aid. Yeah. It uh, provides assistance in very practical ways with people who have been uh, exposed uh, to giving them understanding. Yeah. Uh, and there are group interventions where uh, groups of uh, firefighters or military personnel or uh, police officers, any first responder for sure, mm-hmm. uh, and human services persons, uh, are going to be dealing with these situations uh, much more frequently than uh, average citizens. But average citizens will encounter them too. Yes. We, uh, as we get older, uh, for example, or there's a whole area of maturational trauma, mm-hmm. which is very relevant. And as uh, as people get older, they begin to worry uh, whether uh, how am I going to get away around? How am I going to look after myself? Uh, what if I need special care? If they're in a condo, an apartment, well, uh, I can't move here. i got too many stairs to go up or whatever it mm. may be. 
Mm-hmm. So there are financial issues. There are human support situations because our families today are much more away. The children are away working. There are other countries around the world today much more than they were even 10 years ago. And yes. that's probably going to increase as uh, with what's going on in our world. Mm-hmm. So the maturational trauma is going to be much, much greater. Yeah. Uh, the suicides among older uh, people, older generations, as people are living longer, there's an increase in the uh, stats, the suicides where people take their own lives. Mm-hmm. That uh, can be related to these areas. What am I do financially? Am I going to be able to uh, make this transition? Are we going to have enough money? Yeah. Am I going to be a burden on my family? Right on. Right on. And even for the older person, look, I don't want to use up all my savings here. I want to save something for family. So why do I need to live so long? I don't have to. I don't want to interfere with their well-being. That could be a thought that is there as well. Yeah. (coughs) Excuse me. Yeah. And, you know, the early intervention for me, is all about somebody at least acknowledging that the incident is going to have an impact on you and to at least be aware, to acknowledge it, to accept it, and then to identify different coping strategies because it it doesn't just stay with you for that day that week sometimes it stays with you for years if you don't put in the proper coping skills to um, address the feelings that are occurring because of that trauma so you know emotional intelligence is such a key um, I guess characteristic of an individual who can overcome trauma particularly it's a key. It's a key variable. Uh, that awareness uh, and that understanding. Uh, so many people, when they experience uh, these normal situations in life, uh, experience them in the, for the first time and think things and worry about things that they never really thought that they would. They we did not foresee it. Mm-hmm. But uh, the chances are good that as we do get older and live longer more people are going to be exposed to those uh, types of situations uh, uh, related to their own well-being, how am I going to make it, and their families and how best can I help the families. Mm -hmm. And so resiliency. Some individuals appear to have a greater sense or greater ability to be resilient than others. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that, Wayne? A lot has to do, I think, with uh, uh, life and how one lives life. Mm-hmm. Uh, spirituality is very much a piece there to be able to uh, relax. Mindfulness. Mm. Uh, people who are able to cope well uh, sometimes have uh, learned to relax, uh, be mindfulness, uh, deep breathing exercises and the research in that whole area of Eastern medicine yeah. uh, is showing very significant resilience uh, increases with people who do that. I just finished a, a uh, 40 or so hour uh, certificate course in strategic resilience for first responders. Mm, nice. And uh, that uh, is, has been interesting. Uh, my wife and I first started doing uh, uh, meditation uh, back in the late 80s. And uh, that has been much more reinforced now with the research that's been done with respect to uh, meditation and relaxation and deep breathing. Mm. Now that, uh, that certificate program is called a Certificate in Strategic Resilience for First Responders. I like that. But that has applications across the board. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, it does. And, you know, evidence-based research, mm-hmm. it, because we're focusing so much more on assisting, you know, there's an ethical responsibility and a liability 
of organizations to provide this awareness and care to their employees. Yes. Um, there are some gaps in those areas right now. Uh, more employers are um, more sensitive to uh, some of the EAP types of programs that are possible. Mm -hmm. And, uh, for example, uh, banks with uh, armed robberies, there are more responses to staff who have witnessed uh, bank uh, robberies. Mm -hmm. And I've been involved with uh, that type of work activity to operational uh, changes, restructuring and reshuffling of organizations to uh, layoffs, terminations of staff, Yes. Uh, to staff conflicts when they take place, mm -hmm. the issues related to harassment today, and I'm not talking sexual harassment here, I'm talking harassment that is demeaning. Yes. Uh, a lot of that has been based on gender, but it's not only gender. No. And today, where we have uh, another generation with different characteristics, we've grown up with iPhones, and that's created a personality that's quite different, mm -hmm. then there is trauma that is occurring uh, in which I have been involved in some situations already where the only factor which was uh, creating the conflict was the different perspectives with the different generations. Yeah, in other mindset. words, us, the millennials, or baby boomers, whatever yeah. along the way, baby boomers <laughs> were the first. And today we're looking at the individual generation as it's being called iGen. Mm -hmm. And uh, more study is needed in that area. But there are new therapies that are developed too for people who are diagnosed with um, a post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. um, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, one of the recent ones that uh, have come out with... Uh, Dr. Francine Shapiro, mm. uh, and that therapy uh, uses uh, some of the things that happen to us when we sleep normally, because we have uh, uh, eye movement that is uh, REM sleep, as it's called, rapid eye movement sleep, mm -hmm. and through that period of time, information is being stored in our brains uh, from what we experience through the day and being stored in our memory. Yeah. But with trauma, it's not stored in that way. No. So the EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, that therapy uh, seems to mimic that uh, the eye movements that go along with REM sleep and to help people through and store the traumatic information that they've had in different parts of their brains mm. and their in their heads type of thing. So, okay. So I, I want to hear more about that, but we need to take a break. So we'll take a break now, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about the different interventions that are in place to deal with uh, stress. You're listening to Mental Health. Let's talk about it on CIOE 97.5 Community Radio. <laughs> 